is a special day for us here at Bethany. We have ten people that are going to uh, express publicly their faith in Christ through baptism, and we look forward to that. I'll let you know when. Those that are being baptized, I'll let you know when. You can go downstairs to change or uh, then come back up and sit on the front row here. But before we do that, let's uh, turn to John chapter 2. Just for, this is probably the briefest sermon you'll ever hear me preach. John chapter 2. Verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered That it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now we've been, last week we started this passage and we were talking here. We see the life of Jesus as he goes to Cana to the wedding. Uh, He shows himself as the life as depicted in John chapter 1 verse 4. And now we see him going into the temple Depicting himself as light. He is the light of the world. And he brings to the world the light of of God's reverence. This is what he is concerned with primarily. There are three parts to this passage, which we'll get to the other parts um, in a week or so. Here Jesus is showing himself as the one who cleanses God's house. Now, the last time we were in this passage, Jesus had gone to Capernaum. He, he attended the, now he's attending the Passover, the most important feast of the Jewish year. Every, every Jewish male of the age of 12 and, and above was required to attend the Passover and Go to the temple and pay the temple tax. The temple was supposed to be a place that was given exclusively for worship. However, it had become corrupt, corrupted and turned into a place of business with inflated prices and sales of animals for offerings and exchange of currency for the temple tax. The temple tax had to be paid in Jewish currency, could not be paid in Roman currency, because Roman currency had less precious metals in it than Jewish currency had. And so it tells us that corporate worship is to be a thing of the heart. It's to be a thing of devotion to God, not uh, not a, a place to do business or make a profit or make oneself look great or advance oneself. 
It is a place for devotion and self-sacrifice. And the focus is on God and God alone. It's not a place, a marketplace for profits or to satisfy the temporal desires of our flesh. Bruce Barton writes in his, in his, uh, in his book called Cheap Worship, he writes, Jesus would not condemn all fundraising, but when worship services are broadcast for no apparent reason other than to raise money, we should We should be suspect. How true that is. Seems that so much of what we hear about religion these days, especially the Christian, quote unquote, Christian religion, is all about making money or raising money. Now, this scene is better understood, and we talked about this briefly last week, about Understood better if we grasp the word temple. And there are two words in the Greek New Testament with regard to this single word, temple. One word is the word heron, and the other is the word heros. The first word, heron, speaks of a sanctuary, a place where worship takes place. Uh, it's, a, it's a building. Uh, this word was used of the, of the temples of the the pagan gods of the Roman time. They went to the temples and they worshipped and did their their things at the temple. This was used of the temple of Artemis in Acts chapter 19, verse 27. The second word, heros, which is also translated temple, means a little something a little different. It's not just the place, it is the transcendent purity of the place. It speaks of that which is holy in the service of the temple. So what's done in the temple, the worship that takes place in the temple, not just the building itself. We are the temple of God, Paul tells us. And as such, we are to worship in the spirit. We're to worship in spirit and truth. Our spirit is to be connected to God in worship so that the worship is is acceptable to Him. Now only those who've been saved by the grace of God, those who have trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior can actually worship truly. No one else is able to worship God. For those that worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the truth of the matter is that people who do not believe, people who have not been saved by the grace of God, have no capacity to worship. They can go through all the motions. They can do all the lip service. But until there is a repentance of sin in the heart, until that person realizes before God that they have broken His law and insulted His holiness, worship is not possible. Jesus comes into the temple and he is incensed and outraged at what he sees taking place there. His father's house. And instead of destroying it, which he could have very easily done, he cleanses it. 
driving out all of the filth and graft of men and seeking to bring in reverence and holiness that it deserved. That's true of every life that Jesus saves. He drives out the sin and the self and and that life then is cleansed and purified before Him. And He becomes Lord of that person's heart and body. It teaches us that when we come to worship in this corporate place, we should leave behind the worries and distractions that life produces and find ourselves trusting the Savior to meet our needs, not manufacturing some synthetic form of satisfaction that really has no lasting effect. Our greatest needs in this life are spiritual ones, not physical ones. Now what happens next in verse 15 and following seems very uncharacteristic and almost inappropriate for Jesus in the eyes of many. The sounds and the praise and the prayer of the temple have been drowned out by the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep and the sounds of coins tinkling in baskets. So Jesus, seeing this, becomes angry. He is incensed at what he sees. They've turned his father's house into a place that resembles the market. And so he found a piece of rope, which would not have been difficult to find, seeing that there were cattle and sheep tied up everywhere. He plats it into a a semi, sort of a whip, ties a, a knot in the end of it, and begins to drive out the people that were in the temple, swinging the whip, maybe even making contact with people. It's, this was not the normal whip that we think about in New Testament times. The whip that we see most described was a flagellum, which was strips of leather with bits of ivory or glass tied into it so that it did extreme damage when it was used. This was simply a what we would call a hemp rope. Cords of cords of strands of plants that had been made into a rope. And Jesus took one of these and tied them together to make a, a big enough whip that he could intimidate with it. Same word is used in Acts 27 where it speaks of the soldiers cutting away the ropes of a boat that was on a ship. I think we should never let it be said that Jesus was a wimp or a weak individual. He certainly was not. However, that is not the issue behind this as to what kind of a he-man Jesus was. And he was indeed a man's man. Jesus went into the temple not as a he-man or to show human power. He went in in the power of the Holy Spirit and cleaned the temple out. Jesus was always walking and operating in the power of the Spirit. Listen to what you remember in John chapter 18 when Jesus had just come out of the garden and his disciples were with him. 
And the soldiers came with spears and and swords to take him. And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. What did he say? He said, I am he. I am. And they all fell down backwards onto the ground. This is how Jesus went into the temple. He went in in the power of the Spirit. And in that power, He drove people away from their, from their sinful, selfish business that they were doing in His Father's house. Zechariah 4, verse 6, He came to me. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's how Jesus went in. By the spirit. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We operate the same way. In the spirit. We don't have to... We don't have to assert ourselves humanly. We simply do what God tells us to do. Now we get an indication of this in verse 15 of physical force when it says he drove them all out of the temple. That word drove is a action word that's that means literally to expel to drive from a place or to make someone leave a place it's much like a person drives cattle into a place that they wanted them to go into a pen or whatever it's the same word used in genesis 3 from the hebrew where god drove adam and eve out of the garden he forced them out We see it also in Mark chapter 1, verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Luke chapter 4, verse 29. When Jesus had cast the demons out of a a man into pigs, it says they they came out and they drove him out of town and brought him to the edge of a hill. They were going to cast him over. But he disappeared out of their sight. Sometimes we get driven out of places. I remember being in a man's house one time and I opened up the scriptures to begin to give the gospel. And he he stood up and he said, that's it. I want you to leave. And he literally forced us to the door to leave. Paul experienced this with Barnabas in Acts 13. But the Jews and devout women of high standing and leading men of the city stirred up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So this word sort of has overtones of violence in it. One can see the passionate force behind the word. What we would say today is I I physically threw them out. Whatever it looks like on the surface, it was the epitome 
of Paul's statement in Ephesians 4 verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Jesus was angry in a righteous anger. And what he did was not sinful. But in character. For his father's house. The same is true for us. Those of us who know the Lord and follow the Lord and believe in Him for salvation. He seeks to drive those things from our lives that are not worthy of His Father's house. Jerome, the Latin priest, writes, A certain fiery and starry light shone from his eyes and the majesty of the Godhead gleamed in his face. I can only, you know, I don't think he had to really touch anybody. I think all he had to do was just look at them and they could see the power of God. And they experienced the power of God in his voice and they just left. He drove them out. They moved. Jesus then pours out the coins of the money changers and turns the tables over. He would not leave a single corrupt endeavor untouched he does the same with us spirit of god will not allow us to continue on in any impure or unclean endeavor without driving it from us he commanded them to in verse 16 to stop the thievery and evil trade that were going On in the temple. And remember whose house they were in. Now we're not talking about this church building. And when we come together as corporately as a church. There's certain behavior that should take place among us. But we're not talking about this building. We're talking about us as the church. Where the spirit of God dwells. Where Christ has inhabited The application is clear. We are the temple of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.19, and we are not to let our bodies become instruments of idolatry and corruption. We are to put away the idols and make sure that our worship is pure when we come before our God. How many of us behave just as badly As these Jews were behaving in the temple. How many of us are guilty of bringing into God's house a whole trainload of worldly affairs that drowned out true worship? We allow our hearts to wander. And we find ourselves far off from the real purpose of why we're here. We as free people have had so many opportunities to worship that we trivialize the importance of it. We don't even think about coming together to worship as a great privilege that God has given to us. Christians think if they come together 
and have fellowship and learn learn a little something and help each other that they've been involved in worship. But these things, as good as they are, are not true worship unless God is at the center of them. Unless Christ is exalted through them. If Christ is not being exalted as the main focus of our worship, then it is not true worship. When we allow anything to overshadow or cloud our focus on Christ, we have lost the main purpose of worship. That's that's why we follow the biblical form of worship. So that we don't allow other things, flashy things, things that things that entertain just entertain to be the main thing. See, all these things must be accomplished before you come corporately to worship. They start individually at home. Before you come to this place, you've already in your heart prepared yourself for worship by confession of sin and and putting away of selfish desires and, and seeking to come before the Lord in holiness and purity to encourage your brothers and sisters in your worship so that Christ is exalted. Bruce Barton, again, in cheap worship, we dare not cheapen this truly miraculous and intimate privilege called worship. Jesus was angered by actions and attitudes that cheapened worship. And we must not and we must take care not to let such actions and attitudes into our church. How true. I think the wisdom of Solomon is appropriate. Ecclesiastes 5.1 Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Make sure your feet are prepared to go to the house of God for worship. Keep secular things out of your heart. And you will keep them out of the church. This is all... This is all the work of God in in us as we come to worship. If Jesus were to come in here this morning like he did the temple of old. Who would he drive out? Pertinent questions to ask. All right. Well, uh, I want to say I'm going to release those that are need to go change to be baptized you can go down and change right now come back up and sit on the front row and um, uh, brothers stay together sisters stay together on the row and we'll take you in order like that and while they're going I want to just say a word just before uh, we're going to sing a song here in a minute before they go before they uh, come back up um we 
We practice baptism because we believe that Jesus has commanded that we do this as a sign of obedience to him. He told his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize them, make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so uh, we do this uh, on occasion for people who have not been baptized and, and want to follow the Lord in believers' baptism. Baptism doesn't save anyone. This water, if you leave it there, it'll, it'll corrupt and turn green. It has no efficacy of itself. It is simply a picture of what has happened in the heart and life of the individual who has trusted Christ. They are taken under the water to depict de- their death in Christ, Romans 6, and they are brought up out of the water to depict them their resurrection with Christ as a new creature in Christ Jesus. Again, Romans chapter 6 as well. So that's that's why we do this and it's always a privilege to to baptize people and I've listened to every one of these people. We have 10 people who are going to be baptized this morning. I've listened to every one of their testimonies and I'm satisfied that that they have trusted the Lord. Their desire is to follow the Lord and be obedient to Him and to love Him. And so many of these are children, uh, children of our church, and we're so thankful always to to have children following the Lord in, in baptism. So uh, here are the people that are going to be baptized. Nancy, Zo- Nancy Zozel, Jada Smith, Joe Lee Smith, Cullen Smith, Isaac Uphoven, Elisha Uphoven, Isaiah Uphoven, Jim Sharber, Clara Spurlock, and Mimi Spurlock. So those are the ten people. So as they're changing and when they're, as they're coming back up here, um, if you'll come, Jared, and just lead us in a song. I think we're going to sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. So... Let's let's sing that together and we're gonna move some stuff while up here while we're singing.